calling Emmanuel to come. What a rich history that, that hymn has that we are a part of here in the 21st century. I've never actually watched one, but I see them advertised all the time. Shows about criminal minds. We want to know why it is that wicked people do the things that they do. We want to understand the mind of somebody like Hitler or, or Pol Pot. We want to know what makes people tick, partly for good reasons, so that we don't end up like them or doing the things that they did. Well, partly just for the voyeurism of it. It usually revolves around the argument of nature versus nurture. Was that criminal genetically predisposed to that action? Or was it the environment that created him into a monster? And the truth is, it's both and. The truth is, sin is at the root. As Westminster defines it, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And that's good as far as it goes. But what drives sin? What motivates sin? What causes somebody to be out of conformity or desire to transgress God's law? And there we can answer is invariably a hatred of God. That is the crux of the matter. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist asks in Psalm 2. Last week I mentioned that chapter 2 of Matthew is, is taken up with two contrasts of two different responses to Jesus as the Messiah. We saw last week that the nations are drawn to worship Jesus, and they come because they love Him. They love Him, and so they respond in worship. But we notice that there are also a second response, and that we'll find today. And that's the response of Herod. And that is a response of hatred with murderous intent. We notice that there are really only two responses. You either love Jesus, and you respond in worship, or you hate him, and you want nothing to do with him, and you would do anything in your power to be free from him. Today we see the latter response as Herod, threatened by the newborn king, rages against God, plotting to kill the newborn. But a remarkable thing takes place in this text. Jesus recapitulates Israel. That means that Jesus embodies Israel and his story plays out the same story that Israel walked through. Except where Israel failed, Jesus was faithful. For the sake, he undergoes exile in our text today for the sake of a new exodus. But just his interest, entrance into the world causes a stir, leading to Rachel's mourning for her children. His entrance into the world leads to the devouring sword and innocent people's death. And Jesus, Jesus returns to Nazareth, a humble king from the sticks. And as the nations rage at the birth of the king of kings, we learned a valuable lesson that Jesus will bring out later. Jesus did not come to bring peace, but the sword. And therefore, we must expect hardship and persecution. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 13. Now when they had departed, that is Joseph and Mary, 
or I'm, I'm sorry, when they had departed was the wise men. When the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went to live in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask that as we open it, you would open our eyes to behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. No sooner have the worshipers, the wise men, withdrawn, who were drawn to the light of the world, departed, than an angel appears to warn Joseph of an impending threat to the Holy Family. Again, in a dream, the angel this time warns Joseph that Herod is about to search for the child to murder him. He is to leave immediately with the child and his mother and to flee to Egypt. Just as in chapter 1, Joseph proves to be loyal and obedient, going that very night in haste. He remains there until Herod's death. Reminiscent, of course, of Jacob's flight to Egypt to flee the famine in Canaan, we read about in Genesis. Anytime we see the people of God leaving Israel, we are meant to think of exile. And anytime we see them returning to the land of Israel, we're to think of the Exodus. These two great events are repeated in smaller ways throughout redemptive history. Again, eager to connect events in the life of Israel, events recorded in Israel's scripture to the events in the life of Christ, Matthew shows us this exile and Exodus took place to fulfill scripture. And I want you to notice the way he says this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophets. The prophets were not creative types who vivid, with vivid imaginations who wrote things down. And then Matthew goes searching furiously through them to try to find something that connects with Jesus. That's not what happens. That is the absurdity that liberal scholars are going to try and deny the inspiration of Scripture. 
The key is God spoke through the prophets. There is only one divine author of all of Scripture, which is why over 1,600 years, more than 40 authors were able, without a committee, to write a book that seamlessly tells one story from beginning to end. All of them were inspired by God to write the things that they wrote. God doesn't leave anything to random chance. And so, out of Egypt, I call my son, is fulfilled when Jesus goes to Egypt and returns after the death of Herod. But how? If we went back and read that text in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, how is what Hosea is talking about referring to Jesus and Jesus fulfilling that? Well, to understand that, we have to understand a little bit of the context. We need to see what Matthew is seeing in order to make the connections that Matthew is making. The beginning of that quotation in Hosea 11 Verse 1 starts this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I call my son. Hosea is prophesying to the northern ten tribes before the Assyrian invasion. And verse 1 is a, a clear reference all the way back to the Exodus. Israel was referred to then as God's son. And as you read the Pentateuch, it's clear that Israel is not just God's son, but he's a new Adam. And Adam was the original son of God. But his colossal failure, that is Adam's failure, led to new Adams. Noah, Abraham, Moses, finally Israel as a nation is God's son. In fact, God tells Moses in chapter 4 of Exodus when he is giving Moses his commission, telling him, I want you to go and tell my, and let my people go. I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, you have to let my, my people go. This is what God says to him. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Matthew is not saying that Hosea predicted Jesus' exodus out of Egypt. Matthew is highlighting something that is dear to him. That is the divine sonship of Jesus. What Matthew begins to do here is show that Jesus is the new Israel. The fancy theological word for this is recapitulation. Jesus embodies the story of Israel. That means he does the things that Israel did. But instead of failing like Israel did, he, he succeeds. Jesus is the true Son of God. More importantly, Jesus is the faithful Son of God. Where Israel failed over and over and over and over again, leading to their exile and their being expelled from the land, Jesus would succeed. Now think with me about this. God preserved Israel in Egypt for 450 years. America has not even been an independent nation that long. 
During that time, a Pharaoh tried his best to snuff them out. Like Herod, Pharaoh had tried to kill off every male child, hoping no doubt to stop them from taking over Egypt. But we know that behind his genocide of the Hebrew babies is a diabolical plan to snuff out the Messiah. But despite their sojourn in Egypt, God preserved his people. In one sense, we could say he preserved them for the sake of his Messiah. Jesus is Israel 2.0. Just as he preserved the Messiah by bringing Israel up out of Egypt, so God preserved the Holy Family from Herod's murderous rage. Now let's go one step further. Jesus is the new Israel, but what does that make you? If you have trusted in Christ have put your faith in him, then you have been adopted into the family of God. You are all sons now. Not because God is sexist, but because man, woman, and child are sons because they are united to the Son and because they are entitled to an inheritance as a son. We sometimes fall into the temptation of limiting the life of Christ to his time here on earth. And sometimes even more narrowly to his three-year public ministry. But the already not yet distinction helps us to realize that what Christ came to earth to accomplish, he continues in and through the work of his people, his body. He carries that out from his throne in heaven until one day he will return again to bring his work to completion. The exile and exodus that Matthew shows us here is a microcosm, providing us with a snapshot of the life in Christ. It is true that already Christ has defeated sin and death on the cross through his resurrection. And yet, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we don't yet see everything put into subjection under him. There are still enemies that need to be put down. And there are still people who need to bow the knee to Christ. But Christ is carrying out this work. How? In and through his church. And part of that work is preservation. Keeping us safe in our sojourns of exile until he can bring us out of Egypt, out of our wanderings in this life, to the new heavens and the new earth. If God can preserve his people through not one, but multiple exiles, we can be sure that he will preserve his church strong until the end. We may indeed expect hardship and persecution. There will always be Herods. But as Paul said in Romans 9, nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. Of God in Christ Jesus. And do you believe that? Because if you believe that, then when you encounter Herod's, your faith will not be shaken because God can preserve you through him, through any adversity. He has done it, He has a track record of being faithful. And so we can trust in Him. And isn't that the problem? You see, we, we define preservation as what Francis Schaeffer called personal peace and affluence. Preservation gets a distinctively American spin. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus in John 16.33 said, I have said these things to you, that in me, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In me, you will have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I fear that in many of our Christmas celebrations, we focus on so much on the silent night, the porcelain baby Jesus in the manger, that we forget that the silence of that night was broken when in subsequent nights the homes of Bethlehem was torn apart in the search for the newborn king. Screams of mothers pierced the air in that silent night as Rachel wept for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. There is no silent night without bloodshed. As Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 1034 do not think that i've come to bring peace to the earth i have not come to bring peace but a sword jesus meek and mild blonde haired blue eyes lying in a manger i did not come to bring peace but a sword Why is Herod so bent on destroying Jesus? And why were outsiders, the Magi from the East, so eager to come and worship him when the insiders are so bent on his destruction? These questions and more are taken up in the coronation hymn of the Messiah in Psalm 2. And I want you to listen to the words of this psalm. I'm going to read it in its entirety because it's, it's important for what's going on here. The psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, that's Herod, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But listen to what the Lord responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs at the foolish efforts of men to shake off his rule and reign over them. Herod, Pharaoh, Egypt, Babylon, these all represent the hellish ways of men who refuse to submit to God. Herod is just one man in a long line of men that have tried rather unsuccessfully not to submit to God. But these are all just heel bruisers. 
for the absurdity of mortal man or anything in God's creation, challenging Almighty God? It's like an ant shaking his fist at the boot. In 303 AD, the emperor Diocletian, who had set out on a rampage to exterminate Christians, he burned a Latin Bible, and over that he built a monument. And the inscription on the monument in Latin said, The name of Christian is extinguished. He felt in his pride that he had exterminated the Christians. He tried beginning dating from his, the beginning of his reign. He wanted that to be year zero. Unsuccessfully. In fact, we still mark our time with A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, or B.C., before Christ. Moderns think they're smart changing it to B.C.E. and A.C.E., claiming it means common era. But we know better. Before Christ's empire, after Christ's empire. All of history is joined to this event when Jesus, the Son of God, became man. This highlights an essential aspect of the Incarnation. Christmas is inherently political holiday. We read last week that upon hearing the news from the wise men and the high priests and scribes, that Herod and the high priests and scribes were troubled. And that he had searched out the matter diligently. Why? Because Jesus as king, worthy of the worship of the nations, was a threat to Herod and his type of rule. The seriousness with which Herod approaches this problem is measured in the drastic steps he takes to remove this threat to his way of life. He doesn't go to Bethlehem and have all the families sign a non-compete agreement. He doesn't go and say, hey, none of your sons can be kings. All right, is that okay? Just if you give me a verbal agreement, it will be fine. He kills them. He slaughters every child under two who could potentially be the newborn king. I want to draw out two things from this episode. First, does your celebration of Christmas cause political turmoil? What I mean is, why are we not persecuted? Jesus was a real threat to Herod's rule, just as the early Christians were a real threat to the emperor Diocletian. But are we? Are we a threat? I would argue we are not, mainly because we don't live like Jesus is king. With all that allegiance to a king should mean, Our lives are not any threat to the political establishment, mainly because we have accepted the fact that Caesar is Lord. We give our kids to be educated by him. Caesar cares for our poor and our widows and our orphans. He feeds and gives us our games and entertainment. Caesar keeps us comfortable and fat, amusing ourselves to death so long as we keep paying our taxes, our little pinch of incense. Meanwhile, the loudspeaker sings out songs of insurrection. The mall 
is better at proclaiming Jesus is king than we are. We listen, we even hum along, but we don't hear the words. What does it mean that we sing joy to the world? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We need to recover some thick practices around Christmas that center on us proclaiming the king has come. But more importantly, we need to live like that is true. When we begin to do that, I dare say that we will again draw the kind of attention that makes Christmas political again. We do not live like Jesus is king because we are afraid of what will happen. We are afraid we might actually suffer. Our whole life is spent trying to avoid suffering at all costs. We pop Tylenol at the slightest headache and surround ourselves with a protective bumper, or so we think, of money, food, 401k, guns, fences, fat. All also we think we can buffer against the world around us. All to keep us from suffering. See, we in the West have lost the ability to suffer. Have given a choice between the kingdom of God, which involves suffering, and an evangelicalism of cheap grace that involves very low commitment levels and high levels of security. We choose the latter. The persecution of the babies in Bethlehem is not an isolated event, but it's indicative of the kind of experience that Jesus warns will be commonplace among his followers. But are we followers or admirers? Kierkegaard makes this distinction when he says, quote, The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ, he renounces nothing will not reconstruct his life, will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Not so for the follower. No, no. The follower aspires with all of his strength to be what he admires. And then, remarkably enough, even though he's living amongst a Christian people, he incurs the same peril as he did when it was dangerous to openly confess Christ. End quote. Are you a admirer does your faith cost you anything have you had to sacrifice anything to name jesus as your lord or are you just an admirer wonderful jesus it's so amazing what he's done and it hasn't touched your heart It hasn't changed your life. You still treat your wife that way. You still treat your children that way. You still engage in business in ways that bring dishonor to God. And you don't structure your life around Christ. You haven't inhabited His Word and you're not drawing your family together with the Word of God. You're not centered on Christ. And it doesn't cost you anything. You admire Him from a distance. Rod Dreyer in his book, Live Not By Lies, says the kind of Christian we will be in the time of testing depends on the kind of Christian we are today. You have to be living like you are getting persecuted because you will. 
And what kind of person will you be when that happens? Will you continue to worship if, like the churches in Canada, they say you cannot gather together because of COVID? Will you say COVID is, has greater lordship than Jesus Christ? And will you abandon the worship of God and the communion of the saints? you actively avoid suffering at all costs, you will fold when suffering becomes inevitable because you have not prepared to meet it. I'm not saying we should be looking for suffering. I'm saying we should stop avoiding it. Those are different. And I want to suggest a couple of ways that we avoid suffering. One, we don't talk to people about our faith. We don't have spiritual conversations with people about Jesus. And second, in what may seem like a trivial way, we avoid suffering by scrubbing the Christmas story of Herod's soldiers and replacing them with a drummer boy. There's no drummer boy. There's soldiers and there's bloodshed because the birth of Christ led to suffering of innocent people. Is that a part of your Christmas celebration? Do you have Herod's soldiers at the manger? These things must must be kept together because the path to resurrection life is always through the cross, which is not a golden emblem that you wear around your neck, but a torturous execution device. Because Jesus did not come to bring peace but the sword, we must expect hardship and persecution. In Jesus' story, Herod's machinations come to an end. For no one can overcome death, at least no one outside of Christ. Again, an angel warns Joseph in verse 20, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He warns Joseph that it's time for the Messiah to make his great exodus and return to the land of Israel. But Joseph hears that Herod's son Archelaus was reigning over Judea and worries about settling down there in, I'm guessing, Bethlehem. Now, Josephus recounts that his reign, that that is Herod's son, was very barbarous and tyrannical, so much so that even his own governors turned him into the Caesar, and he had to make in his appeal and was thrown in prison and actually died in Rome. He was a wicked, wicked man. And so Joseph has these inclinations which are backed up by the angel revealing himself to him in a dream. And so Joseph takes the holy family and he settles in the land of Galilee in a town called Nazareth. But again, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Except, There is no specific place in the prophets where the Messiah is called a Nazarene. What then is Matthew referring to? One clue is found in the plural. You'll notice that the other fulfillment texts, which is what these are called, it said the Lord had spoken by the prophet in verse 15. And also in verse 17, he says the prophet, singular, and adds Jeremiah, the name. But here he says by the prophets, plural. And so... 
This means we, we may infer something general from the prophets about what the Messiah would be called. So then we ask, what does it mean to be called the Nazarene? There are two broad ways that scholars deal with this. The first is to see that there is a pun on the town's name of Nazareth with, with a Hebrew word that maybe sounds close to it. And there are two words that are put forward as options. First is the word, the Hebrew word for branch. Now, we've already talked about the branch that sprouts from the root of David. That was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. And it is the Emmanuel, the one who would come. So, okay, that makes sense. It could be branch. The other one is the Old Testament Nazarite, one who is especially dedicated to God. Uh, Given that Jesus was often charged with being too loose in his standards by eating with tax collectors and prostitutes, it's doubtful that he was an ascetic, that he had taken a Nazarite vow. However, it could be a pun on the word branch. We saw a couple weeks ago, and so it seems like that is more fitting for what it means to be called a Nazarene. Now, the other way to take this is to see the place pointing to equality, specifically humility. How do I put this? The folks from Nazareth are a little bit backwards. These are the country folk, right? They're, they're different. They're humbler. They got a humbler way of life, of living, than in the city in Judea and Jerusalem. Nazareth is the sticks, literally. Hence the statement of Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But the prophets were clear that the Messiah would be humble. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 especially paint a picture of the Messiah who had, as Isaiah said, no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And throughout Matthew's gospel, he portrays Jesus as being humble. So it seems best to take this as what Matthew means by he will be called the Nazarene. What kind of king would he be? He will be a humble king. He didn't come to live in a palace like Herod. He went and lived in the country. He was a humble king from the sticks. Partly this is what got him killed. They rejected Jesus because he was not the kind of king that they wanted. They wanted a king who would ride into Jerusalem, who would set up his opposition army and then overthrow the Roman overlords. They wanted someone who would restore the former glory of the kingdom of David and Solomon. Someone who would make them competitive on the global political scene. But Jesus didn't do any of that. He thwarted all of their attempts to coerce him, to steer him towards their own ends. He he does this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And afterwards, they try to go and make him king by force, but he evades them. He, He won't have kingship that way because Jesus is humble. Jesus had his sights on something much bigger than just Israel. Jesus wanted the hearts of men. He wanted royal allegiance a king called for, but what he offered was much more than freedom from Roman oppression, but freedom from sin's oppression. 
Jesus came as a humble king to model what citizenship and the kingdom entailed for his followers. We read earlier some of the Beatitudes. They're subversive and paradoxical. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. These are not your average run-of-the-mill people. They're different. They don't grasp after power and authority like the world does. They lay down their lives so that they can take it up again. Following Christ is a costly affair. It involves, as we've seen, suffering. It's radically subversive in that it promises you life if you die. But if you try to keep your life, you will lose it. It promises a glorious outcome, but it calls for you to take up your cross and follow Him. Calling for complete, complete and undivided loyalty. Matthew shows in the birth narrative that we have looked at over the past four weeks, a king has come. A king that provokes some who love him to come and worship and others who hate him to try and kill him. It's a birth that proves God keeps covenant promises. Perhaps most importantly, it's a birth that means Emmanuel. God with us. And as you gather with family and friends this Christmas, I hope that in all your traditions, you remember to make that the center of it all. From heaven, He came to save us. Jesus, our Emmanuel, came to set us free from sin. His humble birth and His sacrificial death are reminders of the kind of king that He is. He is a humble king from the sticks. A king that calls you to follow in the same path that He tread. And it's a path that leads to glory, but it's a path through suffering. So we must expect hardship and persecution. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are in awe that you sent your Son, our only Savior, the Lord Jesus, to take on flesh, to dwell amongst us, and to suffer for us, to provide a way for us to be reconciled with you, to be forgiven. And we're reminded that his life was upsetting to the world, that Not only the world hates Jesus and his birth as king, but Satan hates Jesus. And he will do everything to thwart his plans. And that means that we will endure hardship in this life and persecution. Father, give us strength to to stand in, in the day of adversity. Give us wisdom that we may walk faithfully, loyal only to Jesus as our king. We pray this in His name, and Amen.